the scale is a liar because yes, muscle mass weighs more than fat. That is correct. But over time, it'll take up less space. Resetters, Dr. Mindy here, and I am on a mission to teach you just how powerful your body was built to be. This podcast is about giving you the power back and helping you believe in yourself again. Let's jump in. On this episode of the Resetter Podcast, I bring you Cynthia Thurlow. This is a super fun interview because if you're not familiar with Cynthia Thurlow, she and I are what I call in the trenches with women, teaching women how to fast and how to use fasting as a tool to overcome the plethora of symptoms that show up from hormonal imbalances. And what's really interesting, and she and I have had many conversations over the years, and I've brought her on the Resetter podcast uh, several times. I've been on her podcast, so some of you are familiar with her teachings. But what's really fascinating for both of us is that because we're interacting with so many women and teaching fasting to to hundreds of thousands of women, we have some really unique perspectives that we geek out on on this episode. So I really wanted to talk to her about weight gain. Why does all of a sudden a woman go from, you know, having a body she loves to packing on extra weight, specifically around the midsection? We talked about why does the body do that and can fasting help that? We talked about everything to do with the brain. How do we look at fasting as a tool to help mood disorders, mental clarity, to avoid Alzheimer's dementia? We geeked out on that. We then went into different length fasts and do we need to worry about stimulating autophagy at certain times of the month and at other times, do we need to avoid stimulating autophagy? So if you're not familiar with autophagy, you're going to learn about it uh, in this episode. So we really got into the nuance of what it looks like for women to use fasting as a tool to transform a woman's health. And it was such a fun conversation. So if you are a woman and or you are uh, wanting to support a woman in your life um, and you want to use fasting as a tool to heal your body, this is the episode for you. Her book is coming out mid-March and is going to be a phenomenal resource for women. So I'm really excited to endorse that book and tell you all to go grab it. It's right down a woman's fasting alley and is going to change so many lives. So Cynthia Thurlow, really fun discussion. Excited to share it with you all. Hey, Recenters, as we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. So here's what you get in the Academy. And I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My Academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy to become a member. 
I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled and let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy. Excited to see you there. Okay, so this is what I think would be really like enlightening for people to hear and start with is this idea that not enough people are talking about women and fasting and really like women and food. We're getting a little more people are are starting to see, oh, women might need to eat a little differently. We're starting to see some conversations around women need to exercise differently. I even had a conversation yesterday with our um, one of our favorite oil companies, and we're looking at how we can use essential oils to map that to a woman's oh, menstrual cool. cycle. Yeah, so Love I'm it. starting to see this like bubbling up of conversation of how how did we get stuck in this one size fits all with men on all these lifestyle tools? So I'm going to just go deep here and say, why do you think it's taken this long? for books like yours, for conversations like this, for women to wake up that we need to do our lifestyle different? Well, I think it's a byproduct of the patriarchy. And I say that with great reverence and love. Like I have an all male household. I'm the only female. Um, But I think a lot of it's a a reflection of research being focused on men because they're less complicated. Um, They don't have to uh, focus in on where someone is in their menstrual cycle. It's another, it's another variable that they have to control for and you can't control everything. And so I think it really stems from us as a society, just wanting to make things easier. Like women just go with the flow because it makes things easier, literally. And so I, I think on a lot of levels that certainly our generation of women that have gone through this, you know, midlife transitional point, we're saying, Hey, like, shouldn't we make this easier for the women that are younger than us? Amen. Yeah. Our children and our daughters and our nieces and everyone else, like, why not make this more transparent? So they know what's coming. I really feel like I stand as I know you do as well, stand on this platform saying, no one told me, no one told me what was going to happen. And so even as a healthcare provider, and that says something like I've had actual training, clearly not enough. Right. And so I think as we begin this journey, it really starts and begs the conversation to ensure that we are setting an example for future generations and saying we deserve to have information. We deserve to have research done on us. We need, we, we desperately need more education so that women have some sense of what's going to happen with their bodies. We do such a good job, I think, with preparing children and young adults for what's coming in terms of, you know, puberty and early adulthood and contraception and, pregnancy and the postpartum period, but we don't do such a great job with middle-aged men and women and particularly women because we're a little more complicated and that's not a negative thing. Like I want us to embrace the unique uh, needs of our physiology and not to feel like we have to apologize for it. Like I almost think back, I have, you know, I have several nieces. And so conversations start about when someone starts getting their menstrual cycle and when they don't, And I said, but I'm so much, I'm so glad that now it's not just shrouded in silence and secrecy and, you know, let's put the tampons away because God forbid anyone knows we're having our period. Right. And now we're speaking more openly. Like I, I always talk about the fact that I was so ashamed of perimenopause and even more ashamed when I started talking about it. And then I realized there are so many other women that are suffering the same sense of shame yep. that unless we change the, the narrative, we as uh, women that have the ability to reach a large audience of people, then this just perpetuates and then this nonsense continues. And I think why what I, I believe both of us really stand on a power. We want to educate, inspire and empower women to yep. leave their best lives. And the best way to do that is to share information, like share our stories talk about the things that make us feel uncomfortable. Like I had a business coach who used to say, um, when you feel uncomfortable, that's the time to share it. Like I was like, great, (laughs) great. That's what I especially love is coming on social (laughs) media, talking about things that make me feel uncomfortable. Uh, but, But the point is that we as human beings need to connect. And this is such a beautiful way to be able to do that. Yeah. 
Oh, God, I have so many thoughts on what you just said and resonate with it so deeply because I'll, I'll tell you, and we talked about this when I came on your podcast, that when I finally like started to understand my hormones at 43 years old, which was that alone was criminal that I, it took me to 43 to understand my hormones. Um, but I had that same sort of sense of, oh my God, what do we, we need to go teach the 13 year olds. Why, why didn't anybody teach me that there's a lifestyle I need to map to my menstrual cycle. And I, I all I want to do is reach down and start to educate the younger generation. And, and it will be interesting to see if what you and I are talking about starts to trickle down to them, because I feel like it really is the 35 to 50 year old woman who's going through perimenopause that starts to realize, oh my God, my lifestyle determines my moods, my, how much I hold on to weight, how my brain functions. Like all of a sudden that lifestyle you had at 25 doesn't work at 35 and it definitely doesn't work at 45. No. Is that what you see for women? And, and I, I absolutely what are your do. Thoughts on helping women change their pattern of how they approach food and fasting and everything. Well, I, I can echo almost everything you said because it wasn't until I hit perimenopause and I didn't even know it existed. Like, let's be clear I'm a traditional Western medicine trained nurse practitioner, and no one taught me about what was going to happen. Not yep. my mom, not my GYN, not my training. No. And so it really speaks the fact that if we didn't know, then most other women don't know as well. And and my hope um, and my intent is that as we have these conversations and as we share information, valuable information, that we can not only inspire women to take better care of themselves, because let's be honest, most of us think about ourselves last, but also kind of start talking about lifestyle medicine, really not being like such a unusual process. Like really that should be mainstream. Like everyone should have the ability to talk to their patients in an, in a non-urgent emergent environment about lifestyle medicine. And that encompasses all these things. Like I don't want women at 20, like at 25, I was probably arrogant probably thought I'm never going to deal with these problems. Um, and at 35, I was definitely more aware because I was then by then I was a parent, but I think it's important for women to consider these things and conversations to be had starting at young adulthood so that women have a sense of what's coming. Because think about all the stress we would save women if we said to them, hey, you know, if your sleep goes south and your periods start getting really heavy in your late 30s, early 40s, there's a reason for it. And it's not just this reflexive kick all like we have to suddenly lean and veer towards putting everyone on synthetic hormones and doing surgical procedures. And we say, hey, we could actually change a lot of this by encouraging better lifestyle habits. And I, I think the one thing that I, I guess I get most concerned about as a clinician and as a parent is that, you know, as the, the country starts to kind of, or in a lot of Westernized countries start to kind of veer off in this like metabolic inflexibility space. I'm just like, we got to all be working together. It's not just, you know, our voices, all of us need to be working together so that we can encourage men and women to take better care of themselves. But I agree with you. If we start early, yeah. think about it. If you start in college, like even if there's like a, you know, Amazing. an elective that kids, kids, young, younger people, younger people have <laughs> to, these um, days. Yeah, I know kids. I was like, I actually just said that uh, <laughs> younger people are required to take just to make them aware, not something that's aligned with the USDA's food guide pyramid or my plate, um, but actual evidence-based research backed methodologies and strategies that are going to save people a lot of medical expenses, going to save them a lot of lifestyle choices that they have to mitigate. It's a whole lot easier at 20 or 25 to make those changes. 50, 55, 60, whole lot harder. I just had a call this morning with an absolutely lovely woman who at 64, like 10 years ago, started making those changes. And she talks about, gosh, if I had only known if I had only oh, known, I hear that and, so much. Yeah. And so I always say, let's not look backwards. Let's look yeah. forwards, but you know, let's be the light and in a time of like what I consider to be darkness as it pertains to the health and wellness industry of sustainable long-term, long-term ways of living that embrace our physiology and don't allow us to kind of be in this, like, I call it like a void. Like I feel like a lot of, of women North of 35 feel like they're out in the wilderness. Like they can't figure out where they need to go. 
Um, there's always the bright, shiny objects. Like people are like, Oh, I'll get you to lose that 15 pounds. And then, Oh, by the way, you're going to gain it back all in two days. Um, but really providing the education so that women can make, continue making better choices for themselves and, you know, not have to look at, you know, unfortunately there's this mindset and methodology, and this is something that I'm starting to kind of speak more about that the wisdom of, of womanhood, womanhood, that in other cultures, older women um, and, and the elders in general are really respected for their wisdom instead of looking at like, oh my God, now I have to think about like, what do I look like in the mirror? And yeah. you know, what do I look like in a bathing suit? And oh, I don't want to have to put such and such on because I feel uncomfortable. And it's like, we're, we're focusing in on the wrong things. We're yeah. missing so many opportunities to really uh, connect with women in a really powerful way. So that's my hope. Yeah. Start yeah. earlier. I think that's a great, that's a great first step. It's like, let's start having these conversations way before you go through perimenopause and menopause. Like this is what's going to happen to your body. And these are the things you can do nutritionally, exercise wise, sleep wise, lifestyle medicine wise, that are going to ensure you live a great life, not just before perimenopause or before menopause. Like it's yeah. not like you drop off a cliff, which is what I think a lot of the kids think that they drop off a cliff when they turn 50. <laughs> now, my kids told me that the other day my teenager I'm like, like oh I'm gonna have to go back and I have a 22 year old and a 19 year old I gotta go back and ask them that so yeah, they're like what? don't you drop off a cliff and just get old yeah right <laughs> uh, yeah exactly uh what so why do you think I think this is a question to really think about and how to answer for women what happens as we move into our 30s metabolically that makes us put on weight makes our brain not function well. I say it's really over 40, but we're really starting to see it now into the 30s and even into the 20s. Mm-hmm. And what I love about some of the um, things you're doing on social media, your new book coming out is you're really tying hormones to weight gain and a lot of dysfunction that women are having. So I think the most, or health dysfunction, I should say, uh, what what happens to us as we age that makes us so <laughs> metabolically different than our younger versions of ourselves? Well, I think, you know, I always kind of start from the physiology piece because that's where my brain naturally goes. I think one of the most destructive or important changes that starts to happen, you know, we have peak bone and muscle mass in our twenties and probably peak by the time Mm. we're 30. And so as we lose muscle mass, we lose the opportunity to be more metabolically flexible. And so I think about the fact that the more muscle mass we have, the more insulin sensitive we are. And as we start replacing fat with muscle. So as you're getting closer to 40, 40 is when it really starts to accelerate. And it's not a question of if, but when Mm. really have to work diligently We've conditioned women to believe that they need to do chronic cardio, that that somehow yeah. is going to keep them felt. And what we should be saying to them is you need to continue to maintain and build muscle mass so that you are more insulin sensitive. Um, you know, and Gabrielle Lino says, you know, muscle is the organ of longevity. And so when I heard that for the first time, it completely flipped my mind around. I was like, wait a minute. I don't, I've never thought about muscle like that. And yet it makes so much sense. So yeah. really making sure young women understand that got to maintain that muscle mass. It's not just for, you know, the fit pros. Like, I think there's this misconception that they don't want to have a lot of muscles. Well, physiologically, unless we're taking exogenous testosterone or or growth hormone or steroids, we're not going to get as big as men. Like we are not designed to be that big. So that's one misnomer. Um, But I, I think muscle being the organ of longevity, understanding that as we lose muscle mass, it slows down our metabolism, unfortunately, And you really Mm. want to think of your muscles as a glucose reservoir. You want to think about the more muscle mass you have, like every time you're lifting, this is what I do. um, I am helping to maintain insulin sensitivity in the body. So if most people are not exercising properly and they're just doing chronic cardio and we see them, you see them in the gym or the same person who runs 10 miles every day, God bless them. Um, I've never enjoyed running, even though I ran in high school. Um, I just remind them like, it's okay to, to do cardio but really the focus should be on strength training so that you maintain those muscles. So we lose muscle mass as we get older. Wait, wait hold, I, let me say, let me say one thing on that. So, because I think this is such an important point. So if I am going to set out on a weight loss journey, mm-hmm. one strategy to help lose weight is to build muscle. 
Absolutely. Okay. And then what do I do if I look at the scale and I'm trying to lose weight and I'm doing that by building muscle, the scale's going in the wrong direction. My clothes are fitting a little tighter and I, how do I overcome that? Because that's a a, a challenge I hear women say is like, oh, Oh, now my, my booty is a little bigger and I put my skinny (laughs) jeans on and they don't feel as good. And the scale's Mm. gone in the opposite direction. And now what do I do? The scale is a liar. That's what I tell (laughs) people all the time. The scale is a liar because yes, muscle mass weighs more than fat. That is correct. But over time, it'll take up less space. So you want to think about it. You're efficiently utilizing the space in which you had for muscle. And you may see a transient change in your weight. But I want you to focus in on the benefits you're doing for your body and stay the course. You know, we're unfortunately a very, we're a society that's very fixated on the number and not on metabolic health. And I think we have to kind of reframe those thoughts to understand that, yes, maybe my weight is up a little higher than I want it to be. It could be so many things that impact your weight gain from day to day. First of all, stop weighing yourself every day. I think that's like the best, you know, go by the way your clothes fit or set aside a week, one, you know, one day out of the week or one or two days out of the month when you weigh yourself, the rest of the time, put the scale away. The scale is a liar. And I think it, it creates more psychological stress and, uh, you know, I just, I think we, we, we focus on the wrong things. But I have to stop you there too. Cause I'm, I'm thinking about the last time you and I talked and you said you're a grown ass woman and <laughs> <laughs> stop snacking. And, um, you know, we put that, the resetter podcast has a YouTube channel. We put that, that little clip. People loved it. So <laughs> now I know you were like, what did I say? Yeah. But I have to say, I'm going to say it now. You're a grown ass yeah. woman. Put the flipping scale away. It is not teaching you what you need to know about your metabolic health. And it's not, and it's not reinforcing good habits. And and I know everyone thinks I'm really nice and I am very nice, but there's (laughs) a lot of snark deep down. And that's where that must have come from. I must have been feeling a little bit feisty. That that is awesome. I love it. That's why I want to highlight it. Is it's just you. You were it was a great conversation and you were like really passionate and the statement was great. So yeah, no, I, I think I think there are far too many women that fixate on that number on the scale and they lose out on their life. It's like toss the scale, like let that, like you just need to let that die, let the scale die. And the scale is a liar. And if you start to understand that that comes from a place of love, uh, I I literally don't weigh myself. I I mean, I occasionally I I have to, because I go to a doctor's office and I'm required to step on their scale but it's, it's just, it's not healthy. It's not even healthy yeah. for me to do it all the time. I have, I have a couple of friends who weigh themselves every day and their whole day is mitigated on whether they're up or down. It's, it's a control issue mm-hmm. though. I, I have to say as somebody who spent 20 years of my life hopping on the scale every morning, it's it, I had to really let go of mm-hmm. that. Like, okay, my weight is okay today. I'm okay today or, oh, it's, I'm not okay today. I better change my lifestyle. So if we don't have that as a measurement, what do you think is a good measurement of metabolic health? Well, I mean, if we're just saying uh, within the confines of your home, I, I think that we all have that pair of pants or that pair of jeans that lets us know that we're either like headed in the right direction or we're not headed in the right direction. Um, you know, when it comes to markers of metabolic health, I mean, I could talk about those labs till the cows come home. Cause I think there are so many options now for women, but I think having a continuous glucose monitor and being yep. really honest with yourself, or if, or if that's not within your budget, having a glucometer, yep. in fact, more often, I would say 99.9% of the time when I work with women, that's one of the first things I recommend because I'm like, I don't know what's going on with your blood sugar. And I yep. need to know, I yep. want to know what's going on at nighttime. I want to know what's going on during the daytime. And this doesn't just apply to middle-aged women. This is everyone. We are in a public public health crisis threat in terms of metabolic flexibility. And it's time for us to step up and adult. And part of adulting is getting curious about what's going on with your blood sugar, because most of us are unseemingly, we're unaware that we're insulin resistant. And if we're insulin resistant, guess what isn't going to change? Yeah you know, it won't change. And so I think part of full-on adulting, if you will, (laughs) uh, is 
being aware of what your blood sugar is doing and the response to stress, sleep, nutrition, exercise. Um, you know, the irony, Mindy, is in the midst of like all this book brouhaha, uh, all the podcasting and media stuff I've been doing. I trend my blood sugar and it, I think it's out of excitement. It goes up, you know, yeah. there's a little bit of cortisol goes up, my insulin and blood sugar go up. But it's really fascinating to watch. Like, I don't normally have as many blips on my my CGM, but now I do because I'm like, oh, I can see why that happens. But the point is, the more you know, the better choices yeah. you can make. And I think for a lot of women, they assume, irrespective of their age, they can eat whatever they want. Well, those days are gone, ladies. You know, you yeah. can't just eat whatever you want. You have to be conscientious. And it's not to suggest that Mindy and I don't eat fun foods. Um, I just don't eat them very often. And my kind of catchphrase lately has been, if you can't moderate, you eliminate. And I think that really Mm. rings true for a lot of people are like, oh, I don't keep gluten-free cake, cookies. Can't, I don't keep any of that stuff in my house. You know why? Because I can't moderate. So I just eliminate. It makes it much easier, much, much easier. It's a great, it's a great, that's a, as somebody who has an all in personality, (laughs) I should probably use that as my own mantra. (laughs) So, so here's what I hear is we need to build muscle and we need to know our blood sugar. And then the next question on the blood sugar would be, um, and I've worn on and off those monitors uh, as well. What do you see trends in yourself? Do you see trends in your community with the menstrual cycle? Does glucose go up the week before our, our periods or does it go down once our period starts? Like what's the trend you're seeing? Um, most of the trends that I'm seeing is we know that in the luteal phase, when progesterone is predominating and again, an oversimplification, we know that we become more increasingly insulin resistant. So you are going to see higher blood sugar values. You may even see higher blood sugar values at nighttime as well. It freaks everyone out. They're like, it what does. am I doing wrong? Yes. What am I doing wrong? I don't understand. I had this huge spike and I was like, it's our physiology. And then typically within the first, second, or third day of when the menstrual cycle starts, when you start bleeding and estrogen is is starting to kind of rise, we're starting to see an improvement in that. But to recognize that, you know, CGM data can be hugely impactful, but know that if you have the ability to plan your presentation, your trip, anything that's stressful, do it in the beginning part of your menstrual cycle. If you know you have a fitness competition or you're going to do CrossFit or whatever it is that you're doing. Do in the beginning part of your menstrual cycle because your physiology actually works with you, not against you. Mm. And so backtracking a little bit, like when estrogen predominates, we're more insulin sensitive. We can push the envelope with our exercise. You know, we don't have to maybe be as super conscientious as we are about sleep. I'm not suggesting sleep isn't important. Just saying, you know, you may get by with six and a half or seven hours as opposed to eight or nine, but then understanding and kind of leaning into the second half of the menstrual cycle, understanding that you're going to see variations in your blood sugar. Um, you're going to see variations in your response to food. You're going to see variations in your response to sleep. And just to acknowledge and say, okay, this is why you and I both talk about doing like yoga and walking and Tai Chi second half of the menstrual cycle and not like CrossFit right. and super hard conditioning classes. Um, it also means, you know, this is why we get conscientious about our nutrition the entire month, but acknowledging that your body might need a little bit more carbohydrate. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but there's a lot of hormonal fluctuation going on behind the scenes. And this might be the time to have, if you're a middle-aged woman, maybe you're having a third or half a cup of some sweet potato or root vegetables. Maybe if you're a younger female, you have more flexibility, you're more insulin sensitive, um, even based on where you are in your cycle. And so doing some experimentation, like I encourage everyone to experiment. Like we don't do this enough when we talk to our patients, we aren't saying like, experiment. They want us to give them the order. Like, this is what you do, how you do it. (laughs) And we have to kind of break that conditioning because it can be harmful. I think genuinely because people stop trusting intuition, they stop trusting what their body's trying to tell them. And I think that's so important so that women understand if we took 10 women at the same age and put them all together and they're all in the same part of their menstrual cycle, they all might need a little bit different. Maybe one person needs a little bit more carbs. Maybe someone else needs a little more sleep. Maybe someone else needs Um, a little more physical activity. I mean, one of the things that I love about just walking, which is not super sexy, what helps with insulin sensitivity? Walk. I mean, it requires no equipment other than maybe wearing shoes, depending on where you live. Um, Super, super important. So I do see those trends. And certainly 
for women that are menopause that get flux because then they're like, well, everything looks a little bit the same all month long. And I was like, that's one of the benefits. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's one of the benefits. Yeah. That, you know, I think that when um, that's such a huge point for women to understand. And I think this is actually why we're, we, they haven't done a lot of women only studies mm-hmm. because we need to personalize our food. Everything has to be personalized, but not just for our sex, for us individually. So it's really, I I really resonate with what you're saying, because we get this a lot in our community, which is just give me the one size fits all approach for a woman. And I'm like, no, 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 there's no one size fits all for a woman. You here are the guidelines, which is what, you know, I think books like yours are going to do so well. Here are the guidelines And now you have to go one more step and customize it to you. Would that, is that how you feel? Would that be like an accurate statement? Yeah. And you did such a beautiful job. I think the word bioindividuality, which makes my husband cringe every time he hears it, but I just say we are unique. Our physiology is unique to each individual. Our DNA is unique. And so I think it's important to encourage women to say, here are some strategies, try them out, see how you feel. Um, like I said, it's this conditioning that we've encouraged people that the one size fits all works. It doesn't. And that's why writing a a book is so complicated Uh, because you acknowledge I'm always like, but, but I mean, all the time, I I feel like I'm constantly saying, well, try this out and see how you do. I mean, I'm sure for you, you've got programs that are running right now. Same thing with, with me. And, you know, as I'm watching women kind of get their way through being, you know, newbies with intermittent fasting, and I can kind of predict some of the things that will come up at certain stages, but even then there's always, they're always outliers. There's always people that maybe mm-hmm. something's more effortless for them. Something's harder for someone else. Yeah, I think that we really need to lean into the possibility that what may work right now may not work a year from now or might not work yeah. six months from now. And so I think it's important and validating for people to know that, we constantly have to shift gears. And I'll give you an example. Um, through all of my travel, um, I picked up a couple parasites. Ooh, fun. So I, yeah, so I got treated for that and accepted that. And then, you know, there was this candida thing that I'm on now, which I was shocked by. Another fun one. Exactly. <laughs> so yesterday, great. I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm literally like I had my lunch and then I was going to teach a group at one o'clock. And all of a sudden my skin just felt funny. I'm like, what is going on? I had head to, ho- head to toe hives. And so I had to get on this call, yeah, head to toe hives, no breathing problems. And the whole, all the women on this call were like, are you okay? And I'm like, I look like a lobster. (laughs) I feel okay. Right. But, but here's, here's a great example. I'm a clinician. I'm being treated for something. I understand everything behind the scenes. And so it dove me down a rabbit hole to find out two weeks into a candida protocol. Is this common? You know, what is this representative? Is it a histamine response to something I ate? I mean, there's all these things. So the point of why I'm sharing this uh, is really just to say that at this point in time, I've never had a hive in my life. And so I'm like, okay, let's roll with it. Let's try to figure out like what it could, what could contribute to that. Was it something I ate? Is it the, is it the products that I'm taking for the candida? Is it, who knows? Is it because there are uh, the atmospheric pressures up today here in the part of the country I live in? I have no idea, but I'm now going to kind of experiment to see what could possibly have contributed to that. So, so instead of throwing, just saying, oh, this medication I'm on or supplement I'm on must be the problem. What I hear you saying is you're, you're curious mm-hmm. and asking yourself questions, which I think that is the, the message for women is yeah. that as you learn to time your food and your fast and your exercise to your cycle or your lack of it, then when a symptom shows up, I really believe that we are taught to villainize symptoms. Mm-hmm. But if your body had a language that it could speak to you, it would speak to you in these symptoms and yeah. it's telling you something. So what I hear is be curious about it, go digging mm-hmm. for it. But this is, it's much easier, don't you think, Cynthia, to just go into a doctor's office and be like, here are my problems. Dump it on the doctor's lap, have the doctor give you a fancy name for your problems, and then give you one pill and you're out the door. And all you got to do is take that pill. Yeah. Yeah. Do you well, think, do you think that works anymore? And, and do we really need to help women look at our, at ourselves as needing a more, thorough approach to health than one pill, one solution, one, oh, well, one pill. Uh, obviously, you know, my answer. Um, <laughs> well, I just want, I'm, 
I think yeah, it's no, so no. important. I, I think, well, I think it's it, always in the context. Like if we're talking about urgent or emergent medicine, totally different. But for Agreed. chronic and prevent chronic disease management and prevention, we have to take ownership. We as patients, so that we go in there our own best advocate. Like instead of just giving me uh, telling me my blood sugar's high or my thyroid's underactive, it's like okay, well, where did that stem from? Like where did that come from? So that curiosity that I. I hope. And for some people, they, they really don't want to know. They want to come in and they want to take their pill. And that's as much as they want to think about it. They're not ready for that message. Mm-hmm. But the people that are ready to do the work, ready for the message, it really keeps going back to the same thing that we're kind of alluding to the lifestyle piece. How does your lifestyle contribute to the symptoms you're experiencing or the, the disorders you're being treated for? Yeah. And so I recognize that my parasite came from my international travel. I accept that. However, Um, I think it's really important when women are dealing with whether it's really heavy menstrual cycles or lots of cramps or cycles that are kind of, they come and go, they're really evasive, or it's weight gain um, or fatigue that, that we acknowledge that our lifestyles play a role in these symptoms. It's not a blame game at all. I mean, at all. Yeah. I've been there, but I always look at it like, why, why now? Like, why is it showing up now and understanding the hormonal fluctuations that go on behind the scene and how our brains are so attuned to the environments that we're living in that we don't, maybe we don't think we're particularly stressed, but our brain does. And how does that look? Like, how does that show up? And so I think it really begs the conversation to really reflect on why and how these things come about. And, and I think most people genuinely want to understand they, it's not that they want to go to their doctor's office or their healthcare provider's office, they get a pill and then they go home and they're like, okay, well now what do I do? Yeah. Because I don't think, I don't think what's the, the, the root cause of what's going on is really being addressed. We're just giving it a band aid. And, and that's, unfortunately, that's the way the traditional kind of allopathic model is. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly what I trained in. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until, you know, years later when I had a child with life threatening food allergies that I started to look at things a little differently, but I think each one of us want to be curious about our own bodies and we want to understand more. Like I can tell you, um, in fact, I was laughing right before we got on our call. There were a couple of nurse practitioner friends who were younger than me who were like, what's this progesterone thing I need to be worrying about? You know, <laughs> Why all of a sudden I'm like, oh, well, you're love sleeping. on her, love exactly. on her. She's the best hormone. <laughs> exactly. And so I'm, I'm laughing because I'm like, well, as you're losing progesterone, maybe, maybe providing more of it will give your body a little bit of a buffer. Yeah. You know, they were like, but I'm confused. I don't know when to take it. Why do I have to take it? Why is it important? And I'm like, there's, there's nothing wrong with taking progesterone. If that's what, that's what you need to do for your body. But if it's going to help your periods, you know, not be so heavy the crime scene periods, or it's going to help your sleep. <laughs> I mean, there's no shame in that. Yeah. You know, that that's the one thing that I, I think, unfortunately, sometimes I, I think we can also send the message that, you know, we shouldn't be taking any supplement or if hormone, if, if you have a thyroid issue and that's, what's right for you, that's great. There's no judgment, but I think it's also coming from the perspective of acknowledging that sometimes you do need a little more support than just from the lifestyle piece. You may get to a point. I mean, I certainly have an underactive thyroid and I wish I didn't have um, Hashimoto's um, and it's in remission, but still it's just one of those things I picked up along the way uh, in perimenopause, but it's okay. I'm, I'm accepting of this. So I want to be clear that if you do have to take medication, that's okay. Or if you do need to take a supplement, that is okay. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us is that we literally created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man. One of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. 
So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you got to do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. What is, so let's go dive into some symptoms that I hear women complain a lot about of all ages. Uh, and what are some of the lifestyle solutions? Because the thing I feel like about lifestyle medicine is everybody can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, with when we start to branch into medications and supplementations, now you're branching into, can you afford it? Do you have the medical insurance that will cover it? And I, and I feel like that's the beginning of the complication for women. Whereas if we can say, you know, if a woman says, Hey, I was 30 and I had a sick, you know, a six pack ab, which would be really unusual for a a woman in general. I want to say six pack ads, four pack, maybe six pack is very unusual for a woman, but hats off if you have one. Um, And (laughs) then all of a sudden at 35, you've got what I call the wine bar that, that uh, emerges and you get a little more belly fat. What is the lifestyle solution for that? Well, um, I, I kind of start from a place of practicality. And I love that you mentioned, let's not start with supplements and medications, because that's the traditional allopathic mindset. Yep. So the lifestyle piece has to be the foundational piece. Um, when a woman is telling me that her body fat is up, because if you go from having a six pack to not, uh, I think about inflammatory food consumption. So gluten, grains, dairy, alcohol is a good one. Uh, processed sugar, soy, I think about the lack of muscle uh, mass mm. in the body. I think about what's your stress management like. Uh, and it goes without saying, we know we've got 40 times more cortisol receptors in our abdomen than we have elsewhere in our body. So what do you think happens when we get stressed out? We get a stress belly. And so that's a cortisol belly, depending on who you hear that from. Um, I also think about like sleep quality. And I know I talk about sleep all the time. I do too. It's important. But I totally nerd out and try to biohack the heck out of my sleep. Yep. I wear my aura ring proudly because yep. I can track all my data and I'm a nerd like that. So I'll admit that. But I think about the fact that a lot of women think that they'll sleep when they're dead or, you know, they, they put their kids to bed and then they want to work until, you know, they, they want to catch up on email or laundry or whatever. And my mother taught me something that has always resonated sleep when baby sleeps or sleep when, you know, your kids are asleep. Now I have teenagers and that's, that's completely thrown out the window. But the point of what I'm sharing is all these pieces can contribute to weight loss resistance. And so being really, you know, being really conscientious about figuring out like, why did you suddenly start gaining fat? It's like, those are the directions I generally go. And I oftentimes find it's as simple as you're eating too frequently, you know, do you eat three meals a day and snacks and then have a couple glasses of wine after dinner? And so maybe you're going seven hours a day without eating. I mean, that's like unbelievable, but it can be something as simple as that. Yep. That can have a huge net impact. And I think that's why a lot of people have initial such great success with fasting because yeah. they're just eating too darn frequently. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think about the idea that when you are fasting, what you're doing is you're allowing your body to repair and heal. Mm-hmm. I, I think of fasting a lot like sleeping mm-hmm. when, and this is why I'm, I agree with you. Like we have to like protect sleep. Yeah. And I, with the sleeping thing, I have to tell you that the other night I got like laughing at myself. I literally have like, like 12 things I do before I sleep. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, get up, put the blue blockers on, um, get my chili pad going, get the temperature of the room, right? Where's the weighted blanket? Um, <laughs> like, let me take my melatonin sup. I'm like the other night I was like, girl, you were over the top with your sleep, uh, regime, but it works. So, yeah. and that's so important. It's super important. So I think with fasting, here's my question to you is, um, when you look at somebody who randomly gains weight 
And then you see all the things that need to happen to help her lose that weight, which is a beautiful list you just gave. I think fasting is the fastest pay path to accomplish everything you just said. And when we look at the research studies, some of the classic research out of like cell metabolism, they basically, the way I read it is you're metabolically immune from a poor diet. If you just compress your poor diet in a, you know, eight hour eating window, um, you can give your body that extra time it needs to repair and recover from the damage of that diet. I'm not saying we need to all go out and eat a bad diet, but do you feel like intermittent fasting is literally the fastest path to unwind and all the damages you just spoke of? I do with the exception of someone who's not sleeping. So if you're not sleeping, Mm. don't add in fasting, like get the sleep dialed in first. And I feel like there's a lot more women that don't prioritize sleep, but that becomes a larger issue for them than people that are, they're not having issues with sleep. With that being said, I absolutely positively think when we reduce meal frequency, that that has huge benefits. I mean, almost instantaneously. In fact, I'm sure this happens for you as well. Like someone watches a video or is in one of your programs and they reach out and they're like, oh my God. I mean, within a week, yeah, I'm as bloated. Yeah. It's um, crazy. Yeah. And so, some, some days I read my comments and the stories and I'm like, it still blows my mind. Like it's this free tool that transforms your health. Like I have never seen. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful thing because I, I, I think on so many levels, like we're helping build awareness to the unique needs of like women's physiology. And it's a conversation that needs to be had because, you know, we can't apply those principles to men and women the same way. It's not to suggest it's not effective in both genders. It obviously is, but I think it's also very reassuring for women to know like, Oh, okay. There's some unique needs here that I need to kind of lean. And I always say, lean into your physiology. Don't feel like you have to explain it, apologize for it. I mean, I always felt like in my twenties, I don't know if you were this way. Like if I got my period when I was away with friends or over the weekend, I was like, I do a pot, like, I'm sorry, I'm so tired, or I'm sorry that I'm so grumpy, or I'm sorry that I want to eat like a whole pizza in one night, whatever, whatever crazy thing I did in my twenties. Whereas I think now, and much to your point, you know, sleep becomes hugely impactful for women at any stage of life. But especially if you want to lose weight, I always say, if you want to lose weight, you got to sleep. You got, I got to get you sleeping through the night first, but fasting absolutely as a caveat um, can be one of the most powerful ways for people to get rid of excess weight. They don't want. Yeah. Do you see people who, once they get into ketosis, they have trouble sleeping and, and when people start fasting more and even in the longer fast, do you, are you seeing that people struggle to sleep? And I, I do. In fact, I was laughing and there was some, it wasn't one of my groups I moderated. It wasn't one of yours, but it was interesting. There was a woman saying like, she loves how she feels when she does a long fast, but her sleep's terrible the whole time. And I was like, well, maybe you need to break your fast. And she was like, what? <laughs> maybe you need to break your fast because from my perspective, sleep is so critically important for balancing hormones and you know, uh, you know, the lymphatic system, all these, these very sophisticated things that happen and we build muscle when we sleep, if we're doing it properly. So I just said, well, you know, you have to think about the cost benefit, like is an extra day of, of fasting better, good for you. If you have three days where you sleep terribly right. and you're getting like four hours a night of sleep and you're walking around like a zombie, right. you know, we talk about hormetic stress and hormesis. And I always go back to the right stress in the right amount at the right time. And when that's done, it's great for your body. It makes you stronger, more resilient. But by the same token, if you're doing it at the right time, if you're doing it at the wrong time for too long, long amount of time, you can actually end up damaging your, or, or hurting yourself. Yeah. And so we don't want that. We definitely no. want people to become much more attuned to what their body needs for sure. What, uh, and so one of the things that I've thought about is that Actually, when you are fasting, you're repairing, and when you're sleeping, you're repairing. And I can't find any science on this, but I feel like um, you are. If you're repairing during the day, what if you potentially don't need as much sleep at night? Because now with fasting, you've put yourself into this self healing state, which is also sleep. So maybe there's a, a scenario where, as you build a fasting lifestyle, you need less sleep. I don't, that's a question that I've been curious about. I'm sort of curious your thoughts on it. 
Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I guess it comes down to like, how do you feel when you wake up? Like you might, you might, while you're doing a prolonged fast, maybe you're sleeping five or six hours and you wake up energized. That's great. That's different in the context of that one woman's example. I haven't seen any research on that either. And I think, I guess it's my understanding and obviously I'm not a sleep expert, but I guess it was my understanding that there's so much that goes on physiologically when your body is in this repair mode that even with upregulation of autophagy, this waste and recycling process, I thought the glymphatic system activation actually required so much power that I don't, I don't, I guess I don't fully understand. I, again, I'm not a brain scientist, but that's right. a good no, question. I know I... One that is worth kind of pondering um, that if you're doing really well with a prolonged fast and you're having this upregulation of autophagy, do you need as much sleep? I don't know. You know what? Yeah. To be continued, I'd be curious because (laughs) uh, you and I are probably the closest to watching women and fasting over, you know, hundreds of thousands of women. So it's fun for me to hear what you're seeing in your community. And that is definitely something I've seen. The other thing that I've seen, total side note, I'm not sure I ever told you this, that when we've done longer fasts with our community, like especially when we guide people through a three-day water fast, the most common symptom that women get is either low back pain or pelvic pain. And like, and so we, as the community that I'm a part of, we were trying to figure this out. And the theory was that what if there's scar tissue that Mm -hmm. happens from carrying a baby and delivering a baby? So when you start to make stem cells, you Mm -hmm. actually are are repairing those scar tissue area, that scar tissue area. Mm cool, right? That is so cool. That is so cool. You know, and it's interesting because, um, you know, I always encourage people to, you know, once they're fat adapted, once they get into ketosis to really start to play with longer or shorter fasts. And, and I think on a lot of levels, um, you know, there, there are, there are clear cut benefits to doing longer fasting, but I still feel like there's a little hesitancy. Um, people feel a little hesitant to lean into doing, a two day, a three day fast. Although I met someone in Las Vegas when I was speaking in October and this young, she was young, like 27. Cause I actually asked her how old she was. Cause she looked young and she's like, yeah, I want to do a fast for a month. And I was like, well, oh, why? Yeesh. That was my first question. I was like, I asked this lovingly, but why? Yeah. Um, I said, because, you know, there's that whole kind of communal connection piece. Like I know when I'm doing longer fasts, I feel a little less connected to my family when they're sitting down and eating. Mm. So uh, you know, she was saying, well, I just felt so good when I did a week, I figured a month would be better. I was like, how about you like, just stick to like, a, yeah. and you're a young woman. I, and then I explained the physiology of why, you know, food scarcity and, and famine, uh, might give her brain the wrong information. It might say like foods, you know, not coming anytime soon. So we need to shut down this fertility. We're not going to ovulate. We're not going to get our menstrual cycle. Yeah, no, she hadn't even thought about that. So, yeah. 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 Good. Well, it's a good thing. She came to you. You were the right, <laughs> she was that you were the right person to go ask that too. So that's, that's awesome. Um, what do you think about um, just fast? Like when we look at brain health, mm-hmm. what do you think about fasting as a tool to improve brain health? And I'm talking about all different aspects of brain health, mood disorders, mental clarity, um, even, you know, uh, memory loss, where, where does fasting fit in for that? I think it's critically important. We know that women in particular, and this is just fresh on my brain from a podcast a few days ago, but we know that women are, are become more insulin resistant as we get closer to menopause. And so when you think about the, the net impact on brain health and, and, the degree of Alzheimer's dementia and other vascular dementias that you see in middle age, I really think that fasting is a critically important tool for helping to maintain healthy blood sugar levels and insulin sensitivity. And so, you know, I I think a lot of us in in the fasting space, you know, talk about beta hydroxybutyrate, how it diffuses across the blood brain barrier and that helps with mental clarity. And so that's a great starting point because that can be such a big win for people that are dealing with brain fog, maybe even depression, that all of a sudden, gosh, I feel so much better. It's amazing. Yeah. And so I I think that's a really good starting point. I I talk a lot about the gut brain access and and why, you know, a lot of um, depression, anxiety, et cetera, can really be exacerbated by poor gut health. And so, you know, recognizing that there's this interrelationship between being in a fasted state and upregulation of 
um, you know, key uh, reparative processes that go on in the gut, including if you fast long enough, you know, some stem cell activation. That's another piece of it. But I, I think the more I understand about the brain and the hippocampus and learning centers and other things, you know, our brains are just really not designed to live our uh, kind of hedonistic insulin resistant environment that we're in. So this is why I think fasting is probably one of the most critically important components of not just healthy aging, but just healthy living. And, you know, when I was connecting with um, Dr. Perlmutter, I was saying the other day, it was such an incredible opportunity. He was talking about new and emerging research, talking about how our our brain and our body can actually make fructose in response to uh, inactivation or upregulation of a key enzyme. And so it really just continues to play upon this narrative of, you know, brain health and insulin sensitivity are so closely aligned. And one of the really easier ways to ensure that we keep our brains as healthy as possible is to really be integrating fasting into our lifestyles. For some people that might be two weeks out of the month. For some people that might be three weeks out of the month. If you're menopausal, you can probably do it more often, but really speaks to the fact that fasting is without a doubt, critically important for cognitive neurobehavioral function. And, you know, I'd be interested to hear, you know, what your experiences have been like. I know that um, as one example, a woman I was talking to before our call today was saying that, you know, she had her depression medication lowered and she was finally at a point where, you know, she had had significant uh, major depression, you know, significant meaning that she was crying every day and just really needed the medication, but that she had finally gotten to a point where she felt healthy enough to start talk about reducing her medication in conjunction with her psychiatrist. I would never advocate anyone stop their, their um, antidepressants or um, anti-anxiety medications without close connection with your healthcare professional. But to me, that was, that gives me hope. It tells me that there's a whole lot more, a lot more that's going on behind the scenes than maybe perhaps or even realized. I'm not a neuroscientist, but I I definitely, based on what I've read, uh, I definitely feel like very affirmed that this is such a healthy opportunity for us to honor our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many different ways I see fasting playing out on brain health. The ones you just talked about, about bringing, you know, sugar levels down, which is so key. Ketones are so healing. Mm -hmm. And when ketones go up, GABA goes up. And so GABA is your neuro, your calming neurotransmitter. So I see it really work for anxiety. The only challenge with anxiety is that you, to your point, you've got to become fat adapted. If you're going to use fasting as a tool for, for anxiety, because you got to get into that comfortable place where when the ketones are coming is what I call it. I always tell my brain ketones are coming um, (laughs) that, that you can like actually you know, feel ease into that moment as opposed to when am I going to eat food? Um, Cognition, uh, you know, it's crazy what fasting can do for cognition. Um, I've seen some research on resetting dopamine receptor sites. If you go 48 hours of fasting, you reset your whole dopamine pathways. So I think it is an amazing tool to your point and Perlmutter's point. And it's not a, it's not like one month of intermittent fasting is going to do that for you. That it's the continual habit of building a fasting lifestyle that is going to over time change your mental health. That's, that's the way I look at it. Yeah, no, no. I think it, it, it's a long game. Like I think it's you a long game. Short, yeah, you have those well short said. game benefits, like you, you'll get that mental clarity. And I love that you brought up GABA. Um, I always say GABA is such an amazing neurotransmitter in the body. One that's grossly underappreciated. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's like progesterone, GABA and progesterone. Yes. You need, we need to go to a party where they, they hang out. <laughs> yes. Very mellow. And then, and it's interesting. I was just reading the other day about the dopamine fast where people are mm. in, in an effort to kind of upregulate their dopamine. They are having like a fast from social media and a fast from electronics and how that is allowing for, according to this research I read, it's allowing for this upregulation and dopamine receptors that get kind of blunted because we're constantly like, think about it, like social media is like the perfect dopaminergic yeah. kind of overwhelm where we're just constantly getting these hits of likes and this and that. And so I, I think that uh, it brings up another really good point that we want to find balance uh, with our social media use in, in conjunction with, you know, whether we decide to do a fast just for those purposes, or if we do it in conjunction with 
uh, a combined technology fast along with an actual food right. fast and that seeing how that good. works. But I would imagine for a lot of people, it'd probably be harder to go without the electronics. That's my yeah. guess. And But what if you stack them together? That's a great idea. I love it. Yeah. So, okay. One last question. And then I, 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 I want to respect your time. Um, but I have to ask you this question because this mm-hmm. is another one that I'm like, oh my gosh, somebody who's doing fasting with women, like let's, I would geek out on these moments. One thing that I've been thinking about is if you look at times when your men's, when your hormones come sh- like, like screaming in, and we can look at a woman who has a, a regular menstrual cycle, it would be ovulation. You get this peak of all three sex hormones, and then you get progesterone's peak the week before your cycle. What I know about detox is that as hormones go up, toxins come out of stored Mm -hmm. tissues. We see this in menopause, perimenopausal women. So is it a wicked combination to have uh, toxins coming out because hormones went up and stimulating autophagy at the same time where the cell might make a decision that it needs to go into apoptosis where it kills that cell. And now you have toxins being redistributed. Is that a horrible combination? Do you not want to stimulate autophagy when hormones are at peak coming surging in? Well, I guess you could look at it two ways. You could see that it could be an efficient process, you know, if you're getting upregulation. So that that's how I would. Yeah think about it, um, you know, just based on what I know about the physiology that goes on at that kind of peak ovulatory point in a menstrual cycle. I recognize that we live in increasingly toxic um, environments, you know, the things we're exposed to in our food and our personal care products and our environment. Um, But I think if people have within their you know, their, their grab bag of tools, if they are taking binders, if they are, you know, thinking thoughtfully about, um, you know, fasting as a lifestyle, then I would think that we'd be able to weather those kind of perfect storms, if you will, um, a little bit easier than let's say the average person who's a couch potato eats a standard American diet and goes into, you know, goes into start, you know, start a fasting regimen and, and they are really buffering a lot of symptoms, Um, you know, I I think about like hydration and dry brushing and like all the things that can kind of be supported for the body um under those circumstances. That's a good question. Yeah, I know questions. (laughs) You and I can talk offline on this because (laughs) it's a new realization that I've had in just observing hundreds of thousands of women fasting. And some of my um clients that I'm coaching right now, I'm seeing that the higher the heavy metal load specifically, Mm -hmm. if they're stimulating autophagy at, um, at ovulation, they're getting a strong detox reaction. Mm -hmm. So it has me thinking a little different about where our hormones actually detox Mm -hmm. us naturally. And to your point, it may be good and that might be good, but if you start getting really bad symptoms of detox at ovulation, because you're stimulating autophagy at the same time, that might not be fun. Yeah. And that's why I think it's important to work with, you know, providers that are knowledgeable because that, that might not, strike someone as being unusual if they're not as familiarized with fasting, that that, that correlation uh, could even be made. And, and it makes complete sense. I mean, I, I think about how many women I see that are mercury toxic and, you know, they're surprised. They're like, oh, I didn't realize that eating, you know, five days of tuna fish every yes. week and oh my God, I eating sushi too. three days a week was going to be a problem. Yeah. I totally see that too. So, well, this was great. Thank you for entertaining my women in fasting brain. Uh, I feel like we need to have you and I need to have more conversations like this because um, it we're in the trenches and it's really fun to share a notes. So talk a little bit about your book. What can, when's it coming out? What can people expect? Uh, I'm really excited for it. And I hope everybody that's listening in my audience, specifically this, you have to get this book. (laughs) There is, this is right in alignment with what I'm teaching. And I'm really excited that it's coming out. Yeah. So it's, it goes to publication on March 15th. It's intermittent fasting and transformation and the program's called IF 45. And so this was the program that was developed um, over the last several years, lots of fine tuning and really focused in on educating women about their hormones, uh, about how to fast successfully, whether you're in your peak fertility years, you're in perimenopause in the trenches or you're in menopause, really honoring our own unique physiology. And what I love is it has a 45 day journey where you learn all about fasting. And it's a book that can be for women who've been fasting or new to fasting. And then there are some amazing recipes. I have my dear friend and chef Beth Lipton, 
Uh, I'm all about making food accessible and fun and flavorful. And so we have gluten and dairy-free recipes in the back, most of which are very meat, animal-based protein focused. There are some vegetarian recipes and there are instructions on how to make them vegetarian if that's part of your lifestyle, but I'm really excited. It's hard to believe because it seems like I've been living in limbo for a while. It's hard to believe that it's actually here, but I so appreciate your support. And Mm, that's the one thing that I think, or at least I know my, my viewers and listeners really appreciate that they've always said, like, anytime we see you and Dr. Mindy talking, there's a genuine camaraderie and friendship. Mm -hmm. And there absolutely is. I think there are not enough of us talking about fasting as clinicians and certainly having the ability to impact so many women's lives in really positive ways. Yeah. Thank you. I agree. And I feel like you and I are screaming at the top of our lungs, trying to like get women to see it differently and they're hearing us. So I love that. I agree. Collaboration is my jam. So I love it. Last question I have for you. I've been asking everybody this year, um, this, the podcast, we have a theme this year is gratitude. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of a two-part question. Do you have a daily gratitude practice? And if so, what is it? And what is something you're immensely grateful for today? Mm. Well, yes, I have a gratitude practice and my team thinks it's kind of funny, but part of my gratitude is I usually will, I, I write things down in my phone, but I also will kind of put that out there on Instagram and the stories to kind of talk about my day, but it's generally things I'm really excited about. I didn't do it this morning because it was just been a busy morning, Um, but expressing gratitude in really small ways. You know, my husband and I have a way that we'll text each other and it could be something really small. Like, thank you for taking out the trash or thank you for taking the dogs out. I mean, just really just, it can be something small and that's what gratitude doesn't have to be grandiose. What am I really grateful for? I am today particularly grateful for the friendships. And then that's the great thing about the podcasting community, um, the incredible networking and friendships I've created and cultivated, especially uh, with the upcoming launch, because I feel really um, loved and supported. And so I I was reflecting on that last night, how grateful, grateful I am, but I, I have to share with your listeners I got this wonderful hat. You're grateful, so I'm also grateful for my hat. For this wonderful hat that uh, Dr. Mindy sent me that I get to put on. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, when we're done, we'll take a picture. Y'all can go to Instagram and see it. Um, yeah, I, you know, I agree. I feel like there is a movement of collaboration amongst health professionals that I've never seen before. And it's such a beautiful place. Everybody wins when health professionals of all backgrounds come together and share their expertise and and, uh, learn from each other and do it in a really loving, collaborative way. It's just uh, just the patient wins, people win. It's a really fun journey. I absolutely agree. So, yeah, I mean, I think mindset abundance is mindset of abundance is really the way to go because there's just no way for us to know everything about everything. And I learned from, from you and vice versa and so many other, you know, healthcare professionals that are out there that I feel, you know, immensely grateful. Thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. I love bringing thoughtful discussions about all things health to you. If you enjoyed it, we'd love to know about it. So please leave us a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what your biggest takeaway is.